0: Wednesday so this is before he played in Inverness and he's obviously playing in The View on Friday night in Oban so tickets are still available god knows how but I think there's something like 28 25 something like that left get them bought make it a sellout. out the man deserves it but for anybody who doesn't know Darren or Loki as he's better known. He's a writer, performer, Scottish BAFTA winner, community activist, columnist, former rapper-in-residence at Police Scotland's Violence Reduction Unit. His first book, Poverty Safari, won the famous Orwell Prize in 2018, and his new book, The Social Distance Between Us, has just been nominated for the Royal Society of Literature's Undachi Award. Nice. As I said, he's playing Oban, Friday night, in McTease. Uh, I think he's performing, there'll be a bit of stand-up comedy. Well, not stand-up comedy, but he's he's a funny guy. Uh, and some questions for you to go home, ponder about. It's going to be hard-hitting, it's going to be everything that you could want. Just wanted to say as well, thanks very much to Dana for giving me all of his time. Didn't need to do it, obviously, but he's very gracious like that, so cheers to him. So aye, here's the interview. Buy the ticket, take the ride. God bless. We better start the interview all
1: right <laughs> <laughs> cool mate no worries fine away
0: Darren how are you getting on i'm very well thanks
1: James. um enjoying Stop. the easter holidays with the kids it's kinda we're heading into thursday after two weeks so i am I'm, I'm ready for the, the school to take them back now I think aye. but it's They're, been good it's been good
0: though <laughs> aye as always my man as always have you have you done anything special during the holidays or is it just
1: uh, no, really, just just try to um, just try to relax, man. I'm, I'm luckily like the way I've mapped my year out work-wise. Uh, then there's a lot more time for just chilling with family uh, yeah. rather than just the tentacles of work and deadlines. Just getting in every moment of life, you know what I mean? I just uh, that just leads to burnout and stress, and it's no good. So this year, I took some steps to just make sure that. You know, I do a few emails
0: in that during the day, and maybe I have a wee event here and there during the holidays. But apart from that, holidays a holiday now. So it's been... right. well, I noticed that uh, I noticed that the tour most nights are Friday nights, which yeah. is perfect. It leaves you the rest of the week. You've got a Friday to kind of do that appear. But the tours in support of your book, "The Social Distance Between Us: How Remote Politics Wrecked Britain," which has recently been nominated for the Royal Society of Literature's Undachi Award, I've seen that today. That's yeah. mad. Uh, now, for anyone that's not aware of what the books are about. Tell us how they came to fruition. Uh,
1: well, the second book, Social Distance Between Us, is, is, is like, thematically similar. Uh, the, the first book, Poverty Safari, uh, except it's a bit broader in scope and it has a kind of uh, more conventionally structured than argued. The first book was a memoir uh, that sort of braided together life experience with local political analysis and cultural analysis. The second book's more of a State of the Union type Book Mm -hmm. that tries to put forward a kind of grand theory about, uh, you know, what about the problems that you can have in a society in a representative democracy where the people who tend to rise to the most powerful positions are under representative of most people in the country. I would say that's probably the concise version of what the book is about, but it covers various types of class inequality, whether structural or more objective, like education. Uh, and then it also uh, covers cultural issues like language and um, and social connection and really just tries to to demonstrate on all these different areas how a big distance between decision makers and people on the receiving end of it can lead to uh, even people with good intentions making the problems a lot worse.
0: Now, how's the tour been so far? I see you've been to, well, you've been all over the place. You've been to, well, Inverness coming up on Friday. Liverpool, Kirkcaldy, Irvine, Chester and Oban.
1: Yeah, and then oh. Newcastle as well. Um, I've got Glasgow, Paisley. I've got two dates down in Devon in July. I've got Plymouth, Brighton. Um, the tour, honestly, the best decision I've made for years. Probably, yeah. I would say, the boldest decision I've made since deciding to crowdfund the first book. You know, I right
0: like you're saying that this tour's all off your own back.
1: It's all self-funded. It's yeah. all initiated by me. I made all the initial contact with all the venues, came up with a pricing system as well to kind of make it accessible to people and places and organisations or venues that uh, normally might get priced out of getting somebody of note, you know what I mean? And I say that in inverted commas, but yeah. get somebody of, of note to come to a place like Kirkcaldy or to go to a place like um, the Tannehill Centre in Ferguson Park. And so it was like, it it, it came really from recognising in COVID how much of my income and how much of my career really was all based on other people coming to me with what they think I should do. And there is a beauty in that collaboration and there is a beauty in um in, uh, not having to run about like a blue ass fly on the self-employment scene in the arts, which I've already earned my stripes doing. But I also recognised that it had made me a bit lazy and had led to me sometimes taking on work out of a sense of obligation that I should use my platform to do a certain kind of thing or financial incentives to do it. And these are all valid reasons for doing something. But I was getting further and further away from my roots in terms of performing and in terms of being out there in communities rather than always being mediated by a TV crew. Or, or some other force that just acts as a kind of partition between me and communities. And so I just decided to pull the trigger on it after all the COVID regulations uh, were kind of history. And um, I mean, it's, uh, it's it's been the best decision I've made for every metric that you could measure it by um, and really feels good to be back in a place where I kind of feel like I'm more in touch with my, my artistic and creative side again rather than just the commentator stuff, because that's not really me, do you know what I mean?
0: I suppose it's different being out on stage rather than standing in front of a camera crew. You've got the live audience, you've got the engagement right there in front of you. Now I, got- but,
1: but what I also have is complete creative control. I don't have to negotiate with anybody. I don't have to, uh, I don't have to compromise anything. And I think as an artist, it's really important to have a space where um it's all on you you know what I mean like I've got enough performance experience to to know that um I could walk into a room anywhere in the country and uh and it's on me do you know what I mean and there is something thrilling about that you know what I mean going in especially performing down in England for the first time really apart from doing hip-hop occasionally down there um to actually go up and really be kind of it's, the hustle I've got now is similar to a stand-up comedian. I'm not a stand-up comedian, but it's right. the same kind of thing. You're on the road on your own. You're on the stage on your own. All you've got is a microphone, your experience and your material, and you've got to make it work no matter what mood the audience is in, no matter what mood you're in. And right. so it's 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 nice to be going out and doing that and doing it well.
0: Well, that's the thing. I suppose with your music as well, I mean, for anybody that doesn't know, Loki the uh, the Scottish rapper, mm-hmm. legend on the scene. Mm-hmm. And you had a legend on the scene, that's the thing. So, like, you've already had that kind of energy of going on stage and battling with somebody or just performing in front of an audience that might not be on your side anyway. Yeah. So, when that comes to, I don't know, sitting with journalists or sitting in front of, I mean, doing these big speeches at, like, the colleges or the unis, yeah. that stuff, these audiences, you've already had that experience of, well, these people don't like me. Exactly. Like,
1: exactly. Cause, I mean, the thing is, man, like, I was – um I I had a hostile audience from day one, man. I remember working on a bingo hall in Pollock, just as I was really starting to get serious about the rapping as well. So I had a kind of abrasive teenage fuck you attitude anyway. And then I went into the the bingo hall and I kind of worked my way up to calling the main stage bingo uh, within a few weeks because I was kind of a natural in terms of being able to hold the crowd. But I was also um, getting into skirmishes with the audience, you know what I mean Because right. uh, if their numbers don't come up They think it's your fault personally I would get death threats, I would get pulled in By management all the time for Trying to make jokes about Salmonella, being in the cafeteria And all that sort of stuff Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I remember just like sticking my middle finger up at a, a Person right to their face A customer right. that was just like You couldn't pay me enough to take that kind of Cheap, do you know what I mean? And then, obviously, going into the hip-hop scene, um, I mean, all the scariest things in my life generally, whether as an artist or a person, I mean, touch wood, but they're all behind me, so I'm not phased by this world of of the arts and, and culture and media. I mean, you get a bit nervous, and the, sometimes it's high stakes, but my, my philosophy really is just what's the worst that can happen? You know what I mean? Because I've been in brawls. I've been in, you know what I mean? I've had, seen my mates getting hurt with cars, and parts of our bodies bitten off and just proper madness that happens out there in a hip-hop community and the real world that's not overseen by Creative Scotland do you know what I mean? <laughs> and so it's like when I'm going into these venues whether it's like a nightclub in Chester to perform to 35 people or a recovery community or a university lecture theatre or a proper theatre like uh, the Tivoli in Aberdeen uh, every night's different and that adds to the excitement because i'm adaptable i mean i performed in west pilton on the floor of a neighborhood center on a friday night and it felt like a proper community event where we're all drinking tea right. at the break and all of that know what i mean and it was like the buzz that people get when they see someone off the telly coming into their bit do you know what i mean their their bit where their fair with their scheme and it's a nice feeling for me because I'm not expecting them to have any kind of gratitude for seeing me. I'm the one that's buzzing that they're coming to see me. Aye. So the Aye. idea that they're like, Thank you so much for coming to Kirkcaldy as if it's like a big deal. And uh, yeah, I'm like, I don't worry, I'll be back next year, man. I welcome like this. I'll be back for more of it.
0: I see so that's it. Have you have you taken on that kind of persona of people recognize me now? I'm a not a media personality, but you know what I mean? That kind of I'm a recognizable face. I need yeah. to Kind of not well, the, much myself, but I can't because I mean,
1: the, the thing for me is the show. I mean, it's a bit of a surprise what the show's about, but I can go into it a little bit because the word's out now in terms of I'm halfway through the tour. But what's right. important is that people are expecting me to turn up as my media persona, which is angry, shouty, class politics, West of Scotland guy, very much in the mode that I'm portrayed in media, but actually. The show is, is not about all that. The show's me the, the shows me expressing all the other facets of my personality, you know what I mean? And reminding the audience, I'm not a broadcaster, I'm not an activist, I'm not a campaigner, I'm an artist and I'm a performer and I'm a writer who has ended up with a platform that means I'm obligated to do certain things, but at the core of me is not a kind of is it's not a media personality as such. I'm I'm a hardcore artist and I have things that I want to say and ways I want to tackle things. And so the show takes the theme of the book, which is proximity and distance, but applies it to my personal life. How has my public visibility and my so-called success affected me in a personal way? It's put, put distance between me and the community. It's put distance between me and my friends, sometimes even me and my family, me and my own children at, at times. And so I use every artistic creative and rhetorical tool at my disposal to look at those themes and to show them in different ways, to make it an entertaining, humorous, uh, occasionally biting, you know, the stuff that you would expect type of night, but not the sort of night where people go away feeling they're on a downer because life is shy. Actually, the kind of night where they feel, maybe like they would feel if they went to a Jerry Sadovitz gig, where he kind of uses that caustic offence-giving where people come out feeling kind of cleansed as if their demons have been exercised in some way. I think my act is kind of similar, except I don't don't lean into that sort of material. What I talk about is class, and I talk about it in such a caustic, disturbing and honest way that whatever social class you are, you come out feeling a wee bit lighter because it's like somebody's made light of the stuff that you find difficult to put words to, you know what I mean?
0: So I think anybody that is working class and has grown up working class, it's just, I don't know, it just becomes part of who you are. It's not, you don't think about these things, and then you'll say something to somebody that's not.
1: Yeah.
0: And they'll totally turn it and be like, oh, you is that how you like grew up? Is that how you lived? Is that?" And you, you start questioning yourself, and then you start to think, "Why? Oh, maybe that is why I'm like that. Maybe that yeah. is why I'm a bit shouting a bit low, because I grew up in that kind of environment. That's...
1: No, you're you're totally right. And the thing is, like I remember obviously like I'm um, a I study comedy as well as music, as well as all the other things. And the the comedy, studying comedy is really useful for a solo performer who's going on without anywhere to hide, you know what I mean? And one of the things I quite enjoyed about what Stuart Lee does is he segregates the audience. So he's got his crowd that know him from day one, right? And then right. he's got he's got what he refers to as the people who who are only there because they've seen him on the telly. But what he's really doing is he's breaking it down into class demographics. So basically he's saying the people who follow him are the clever pseudo-intellectual middle-class people and the people who are coming to see him in the big rooms are the working-class people who saw him on the telly and they don't get the jokes and they're not really that interested. And, And so I like that dichotomy because my audience is a bit like that. Um, my audience is made up of middle class people and it's made up of working class people and the beauty is when you get them into the room together you can target material in specific ways to really play with the dynamics of a space and you can create an environment where everybody gets a bit of a ribbon but because I'm giving myself a big ribbon as well then it means that uh it gives everyone else permission not to take themselves too seriously. So you can lean a wee bit harder into some of the stereotypes around class. I mean, I've got lines about uh, when you catch your smug face in the driver's side mirror of the Lexus or on the back of a colour-coded sauce ladle, and that's for the middle-class people. And then for the working class people, I'm, t- I'm telling them about, um, I'm telling them about, you know, when they meet a middle-class person, they'll try to talk up their, their cultural credentials by saying that they like to visit the quiet bit of Tenerife when they don't, they don't really realise that middle class people see the entire dominion of Spain as, as the Nando's of international travel Aye. and so you can cross-pollinate all of these references to actually get everyone feeling on board together as one, even though you're doing it by pointing out the class differences Aye. Hang on a second Open FM Find us on Facebook We're tune in Radio on the app We're on your slate or your iPad at openfm.scot, openfm.scot, or you can be old and traditional and find us here on 103.3 FM. Uh,
0: Right, there's a portion in the book uh, and in the TV shows as well, the documentaries that you did for the BBC where you're wrinkling clover uh, and you're... Talking to the gamekeeper, Mark, and the owner of the estate, D, uh, you go into that in the book and the TV show, and you ask them about how big 8,000 acres is.
1: Mm.
0: Now, in the book, you say that it's one acre equals 16 tennis courts in a four-by-four four formation. I've never thought about it like that. But when you break it down to that, 8,000 acres times you know 16 tennis courts, that is ridiculous. And you, you obviously go on to say that people can't conceptualise that in the same way that we struggle to understand the difference between 10 billion and 100 billion. Yeah, you know it's yeah. a vast amount, but you've never seen it. You can't picture it. It's all that sort of stuff. And then yeah. you want to say that during the time with him, you start to kind of see things through his eyes, his perspective. Obviously, he's grown up with his struggles and his problems, but they're totally different struggles and problems to, every, to other people. Yeah so the two struggles and the two hardships that you face they are the same but they're totally different because they're on two different sides of the spectrum yeah
1: so if and people... one, one, one is the, the struggles he faces are the dilemmas of being a landowner right and the struggles that other people face are the dilemmas of not owning anything property ownership really that's i mean in, in the kind of sociological terminology you would say you would class that as a social relation right um a social relation being property ownership, right? So that's the whole basis of capitalism, right? And it was an advance in a way taking us from a more feudal society where you just automatically owned everything and everybody because you were part of a monarchy uh, or you were a feudal overlord or something like that, right? So there is an advance there where we begin to talk about property rights and if you own property, no one can just come and seize your property without just cause, you know what I mean, a war or whatever like that. Yeah, and, yeah. and so, like, you know, and from the landowner's perspective, someone like Dee's a small-time landowner, right? Now, that might seem mad to say that. Um, The the King's Estate, uh, they own 6.6 billion acres of land, right? So they're, they're, they're the biggest landowners probably in the world, right, in terms of just acreage. And they draw an income from all of that land for different reasons, whether it's rent, whether it's farmers, whether it's fucking holiday resorts. I don't know. But everybody who uses that land for anything has to pay them money. And, and so when you start getting into the mechanics of class inequality, then I uh, I do have time for people like Dee who create employment opportunities um, who are environmentally minded and, and who necessarily aren't multi-multi-millionaires just off the back of being born into a wealthy family. Right. Um, but at the same time, uh, if you spend too much time around people like D, you become remote from the reality, especially in those rural environments where you're not seeing poverty and the sort of high definition that you see in the urban centres. Then, you know, you can see how politicians start to sort of fall on Dee's side of the argument all the time. Uh, especially if they come from his background, they see it from that perspective. So part of my job is to rebalance the discourse so that you're emphasizing the counter-argument as well. you know what I mean?
0: Aye, like you mentioned earlier, the rural areas not quite getting the not the same levels of poverty, but maybe not maybe not experiencing the same the same levels of poverty as cities are, but they obviously do face different challenges. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Like, I mean, I've grown up in Oban. I've been here most of my days. Most of my pals have went to Union, in Glasgow or in Edinburgh they haven't moved back here. There aren't jobs here for them to live, to work, to try and make money. I mean, one of my pals, he works for a, a VR company, so it's like simulations down in Glasgow. Like, if you want to learn how to drive a train, you go to his company and like, he does like the marketing for them. Uh, but there's nothing like that up here. I know I'm not, I was speaking on like an urban kind of central type thing, but it's like that around rural Scotland. It's like that in these areas. So people do tend to flood to the likes of Glasgow, even Inverness. But Glasgow, Aberdeen, Inverness, like whatever. So areas like here are missing out. And I suppose in a way, the ones that are still here might feel like left behind with the rest of the country. I know it sounds ridiculous, uh, and you might not agree, but for me, like I looked at Kate Forbes, and I thought, well, she's from here. She's from the Highlands. Do you know what I mean? She knows the problems that we face. She can go to Holyrood and she can maybe, maybe make a change up here. But the chances of her actually getting in, doing that, making that change, once she's in there and it's all, no, we need to fix this in Edinburgh, we need to fix that in Glasgow. Don't care about the corn Ferry that's out of service and people have to travel X amount of miles to get to the work. We'll just leave that because it's up there. I think they see us as, you know, as like the touristy part of Scotland.
1: Oh, of course. No, you're, you're right.
0: Glasgow and Edinburgh is touristy, but it's more come here and then go up there. but come It's back. the same
1: as the way Scotland sees London. You know what I mean? It's, it's just the same thing. And really it's because, you know, the power centres are in Edinburgh and Glasgow. The majority of the population is in the central belt. And yeah. so it creates a political orthodoxy where... Uh, When more than half your population is all in that little area, uh, electorally, you need to be serving the interests of that area, particularly um, the interests of the more affluent people. And so they they do suck a lot of oxygen out of the political conversation, and I certainly recognise that as as a problem. And as someone, uh, I'm not one of these central belt uh, folk that doesn't travel. Uh, I get around the country sometimes multiple times a year. Open FM. Find us on Facebook. We're on TuneIn Radio on the app. We're on your Slate or your iPad at OpenFM.scot. OpenFM.scot. Or you can be old and traditional. And find us here on
0: 103.3FM. Sorry, mate. No, you're all right, man. I, was, I had to chuck a cat out like four times. <laughs> yeah. Don't even get me started on the fucking cat. Yeah, I don't know how, but she's locked herself in this bedroom like four times in the last week. I've put cushions. I've had, I've had like, I've still got a like, layered carrier thing. I've shoved that, mm-hmm. I've shoved the door. She shifted that. I don't know how she's a tiny wee cat. No idea how she's done it. Right, aye. So the point I was trying to make with that was... Things like drug deaths hit towns like Oban way harder than they do the cities like Glasgow and Edinburgh. Like, and people here are screaming for reform, screaming for these like the pop up tents, the safety tents, all that sort of stuff. Now, like right, now that it's affected the town, they care about it. Whereas when it was happening in Glasgow and it's it's almost that out would say out of mind kind of thing. Right. So is the is the answer to cure the symptoms rather than the addiction? Because a place like Oban, realistically. If you're not eighteen, there's nothing for you to do. There's no. Can you, I know a lot of places in Scotland are like that. There isn't anything for you to do. So what do you do? You go and you sit in somebody's flat. So well, it
1: starts. It. it starts. It starts with that. I mean, culturally, we've got a lot of work to do because I mean, just getting at your nut is a right a passage and almost an obligation culturally, and that's a big problem. In Aye. the first instance, right? And everything is occurring within a cultural context, but the the, the issues specific to Scotland are kind of 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 our political in nature um, decisions about our industrial strategy 40 years ago uh, which were made in London and weren't necessarily um, we didn't necessarily have the political power or autonomy to come up with our own post industrial plan for what do you do when all the industry that your towns and cities are all built around uh, just begin to collapse or are closed down so there was the, the, the that that's a kind of political dimension of the issue right then you have the economic fallout from that so a lot of people become economically inactive they become dependent on welfare some become idle uh, violence and drugs begin to grip communities fear begins to grip communities and a negative narrative begins to grip communities that nothing will ever change now these are all ingredients which in and of themselves could create a drug crisis then we have a um an ideology within how we respond to drugs which has not really changed much over the last 30 years and this is primarily about uh about a harm reduction model which uh has no threshold for determining its own failure um so ever since they've been tracking methadone as a replacement therapy for heroin and it's it's a it's 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 one of the more effective ways to deal with heroin addiction,
0: provided,
1: yeah. provided that you, you um also prescribe psychosocial support. So you need you need someone who's on methadone to also be receiving a higher level of consistent social connection, which yeah. is gonna also have a medicinal quality to it. And in the absence of that, what you're really doing is you're just chaining someone to a pharmacy. Um who has to run a gonla of drug dealers every day because the drug dealers know where the addicts hang out every day, what time. And um and and, and the thing is addiction by its nature is it, what what an addict is showing you when they relapse on a drug is that they have no control over how much they take. But for some reason we seem to think that they can control the urge for drugs when we're given them methadone, even though it's just as addictive as heroin. Right. And so ever since they were tracking drug deaths then Methadone's been shown up on half of the drug deaths, whether that's been 50 drug deaths a year or whether that's been 13 drug deaths a year. Now, what other drug could you say was on the death certificates of over half of all drug deaths and it wouldn't be? What the fuck is going on with that drug?
0: Aye. And the issue
1: isn't methadone itself. The issue is all of the other issues around drug addiction that don't get addressed in criminal justice, education, uh, social services and the economy, and so what this creates is just a culture where people are sort of adjusted to the fact that everybody's got an addict in their family, and that addicts are all just going to be addicts, and they're going to die, and that's just the way it is. And that's, right. and that's a difficult thing to address.
0: It's like the limit doing Jacqueline McCaffrey, isn't it? Like, the I lost three years of my life to when five years in the methadone programme not was meant to get us off it. Right. That is true. A lot of people do end up more on the recovery than they were on the drug that it's the cause? it's like there's a you get this new thing now uh, it's for like opioid addiction but it's a jag it's a slow release jag and you get it in your side it, I think that's it I last for like the week I know somebody that's on that they know but last flight like the week but the problem is that they take that and then there's no support otherwise they go home they're still in the same situation they're still in the same job they're still in the same flat they're still they're still in the thing. same mind that's it that's what i used to say to people when i whenever i went to therapy or anything like that i would say to people ah, it's fine i can do all this stuff but i can't take this out of my head yeah And unplug my brain sit it somewhere and go right new thoughts come in that's yeah. it yeah it's a general kind of build-up you need to get and you do talk about this in the books like that it's the self-determination of you can only do it if you can do it like people
1: can't decision. people can't make a decision about getting sober unless they have a powerful example of someone who's done it this is the problem with a lot of the drug sector in the sense that people become demoralized because all they see is people relapsing and dying so some of the drug workers themselves don't believe these people can get sober so how the fuck are they supposed to as addicts believe that and so sometimes when when they're and, and, you know, there's so we don't have enough time to really go into it in depth. I touch on this. It's a theme in the show. It's a running thread, you know, commenting on the drug crisis and well, through my own experience and through other other ways that I've had the ding-dongs with people in that sector and stuff like that. But generally speaking, you would have to come up with a plan over 15, 20 years uh, that addressed stemming the, the, the rise in deaths in the immediate term, but also... Was about replumbing the whole drug sector because no matter how much money you pump into it, it's like a canal system. Um, you know, if, if the money's flowing to the same places as before, uh, and it's being spent in the same orthodoxies, and it's being uh, ploughed into the same ways of doing things, then you're going to produce the same results just on on a bigger on a bigger scale um so you you would need to look at it longer term and that's something that politicians don't have a lot of incentive to do because of the electoral cycle so they can't sit down and go let's come up with a 20-year plan because that would mean building a consensus with other political parties and there's no incentive to do that either so really people suffer as a result of politicians always feeling they have to do what's good for them in the short term and this is the case with almost every problem facing our society currently I would say
0: Uh, we're not fixing long-term problems we're trying to fix these short-term problems that don't really need fixed for anything but i suppose all it takes now is for someone to grab the phone take a video or a picture send it out to people uh, to see that like how they live their conditions i mean it's easier now to go on twitter and see like you'll you'll hear about a new tory policy or a new government policy and people straight away can react and straight away can tell these politicians, right, we don't want that, or we want this, or we want whatever, that now with the likes of social media being able to give these people a voice, whereas beforehand they maybe weren't able to get it out there, or they had to go through their unions, or maybe their own thoughts and opinions on these unions weren't correct. Do you think that there's a case we made that with the likes of Twitter, Instagram, whatever, that those people who 20, 30, 40 years ago, like you said, when those decisions were being made in London to shut down the mines, to shut the shipyards or whatever, that while the strikes and all that worked at the time, if they had the voice of social media, is it something that you think will cause a wave of change? Or do you think... They will well, just...
1: I mean, if you go back to that time, certainly if you, I, I wasn't alive, but one of the things I've tried to do is take into consideration all the different accounts from across the political spectrum of what was going on at that time. A lot of the analysis people at me and you'll read will just come for the unions, the radical left, who have a socialist conception of all of those dynamics, as well as history generally. And so the way that we see it, it always has to conform to that uh, narrative. Of class war and all these things, and that's fine, right? And that's an important thing to consider. But then there's also the fact that um there were strong arguments for winding down fossil fuels. There were strong arguments for winding down these big inefficient industries. Yeah. The, the problem was the industrial strategy that got adopted was just closing them. Aye. And the free market will sort it mm-hmm. out eventually. And so that that's the that's the area of contention, really, because Labour had closed a lot of mines. It was just that they had a strategy for doing it at a pace that was not going to end up creating a big economic shock for, for working-class communities. And um, if social media had existed then, I still think that, that uh, Thatcher would have won. And the reason Thatcher would have won is because the unions today benefit from the lesson learned by the unions back then, which was, I uh, it's important if you're... Uh, it ended up just becoming a personal battle between some of the union leaders and Thatcher herself. And so the, the, the union leaders spoke m- mainly to other lefties and their comrades, and there was l- less and less contact with the wider population. Whereas right. now I think, you know, you're kind of your Sharon Grahams or your Eddie Dempsey's or your Mick Lynch's and stuff like that. And we have um we have great uh, leaders in Scotland as well. Do you know what I mean? Roz and and uh, a lot of folk that I, I met. During the uh, during the filming of class wars, generally, people yes. operating very specific type of trade unions and in specific industries like local authorities or, um, or, or in uh, retail and hospitality. And they're very, very clued up, partly as a result of learning the lessons of the past, which is, yes, yes we've got to work as a collective. We've got to be well organized, but we should always be communicating our message to the public because really... It's the public's endorsement of us that gives us greater power, allows us to build our membership, our organisation, draw in new members, get them active in the union. And so history would have taken its course, I think, no matter what.
0: Yeah, but I think like, I mean, I watched a podcast today the newest episode of uh, Danny McGarvey's Common People. Mm. I watched the episode about uh, the tweet about the NHS. Mm. That's the kind of thing that I'm meaning. So that guy's put out an opinion there that he probably in his head thought, Aye, that's great people right, right, uh, yeah, yeah. the likes of you and everybody else like me who's looking at that and going what is he on about mm-hmm. it's that ability now but we've got and i mean i know you get it as well because i follow you on twitter and like you can tweet something and there'll be 30 people latching onto it straight away looking for some mistake that you've made mm-hmm. but if you're sitting on the phone watching the telly just going all right okay there you go <laughs> it's just it's that thing Hi. But it's the likes of, I mean, the likes of Mick Lynch, like you mentioned, like a video of him gets posted, everybody watches it, but it's beforehand they might not have seen or even engaged with that type of thing, whereas now everybody's far more politically incentivized. I think, probably in Scotland since 2014, since the referendum, I was always into politics beforehand when I was like growing up, but I think now with the likes of social media, a lot of people cared and see more about these things, and seem to take more in about it, so... When these decisions are getting made, hopefully, from what you see on social media, isn't always, you know. Oh no, I, I, no. I, 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 but get, you do hope, you do hope that people go right. Okay, we do need to sort this out. We need to sort that out. Whatever. It does bring
1: visibility to it, but again, right. you always run the risk of if you're not communicating a message effectively, then whatever you put out content wise can be recontextualized. By someone else with a different agenda. Yeah. I mean, think of there's a whole cottage industry now for anti woke commentary and YouTube compilations of, of like alt right ex lords offending women with blue hair and uh, saying fucking use my pronouns and all of this sort of stuff, right? And like, so, I, I can't, all oh, that sits in a spectrum, right? I want to say every single person who has issues with certain precepts of. The online social justice activism is automatically alt-right or fascist. That would be ridiculous. I've no, got issues aye. with it. I've, I know fucking people who are members of every protected group that you could imagine who've got fucking issues with it. Aye. But at the same time, a lot of activists and a lot of campaigners and stuff like that, they fell into a trap early, early doors where before we had really learned dangerous social media is and how perception-opening operating is where we just thought, here, man, who gets the most retweets wins? And um, it's not like uh, that. You know
0: what I mean? But, it's not like that. I think it's mental you know, that even like everyday people are having to check their social media and be like, yeah, I need to delete that. I'm going to get this out. Because I've done it. Like when you're like, the thing is, like social media has been around that long and there's that long of a record of it now. They can go back to, I mean, I think my Twitter started when I was like 12 or something. But you can go back and look at stuff when you were like 16. And if you're looking at that, and I suppose if you're looking at it in a cringy way and like, a, oh, I shouldn't have wrote that, it's a good thing. Yeah. It's for somebody else to look at that. Who doesn't know me, anything like that, and sees that, they instantly think, right, that's how he thinks, that's the person he is, whatever. Whereas it's not like that. And I think it's the same with these, like, I don't know if it's the same like these right-wing folk. Like, you can tell that they're charlatans, you can tell they're just trying to get away. it's like, likes of Ben Shapiro, uh, like, thingy Crowder, all these folk, doing it to bring the money in. But it's the same on the other aspect as well, don't get me wrong, it's the same when it comes to, like, the left wing, but the right winger. Do you know what
1: I mean? It's just, it's no, of- I, I, I mean, in a sense, within a capitalist society, you can't be successful at anything without getting sucked into that machine of, of the commodification of whatever it is you're doing. You know right. what I mean? Like, I've learned this uh, over the last few years. I mean, I just got offered a job in the day, 1500 quid for 60 minutes work, which is not an unusual job offer to get. It would involve traveling to Birmingham, and, and basically, uh, I'm going to say no it because um, they've invited a particular politician along and I just don't want to be in the same room as the person and I don't want to be photographed with the person but I can only do that because I've managed to take steps this year to insulate myself from those trickier decisions that might come um, because I've decided to do the tour, i am decided to launch the podcast, I've invested a lot in creating my own stuff and and then it it means that this year I can say no, I'm not going to do that, rather than, oh, I don't want to do that, but I might have to do that because Aye. I don't know what my next royalty check's going to be. And Aye. so the thing is, though, see if my podcast, you know, we say we build it up for a couple of years, we get some good interviews on there, something goes viral, that all starts to interact with all my other career stuff and then it starts to blow up in a way. Aye. And that'll get sucked into that same mill. Uh, it'll become grist in that same mill it'll become susceptible to audience capture, ad capture, the gods of the algorithm deciding that you're the one that's going to win the the, 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 the the feed, the news feed prominence for the day. And and there's just no avoiding it. There is no avoiding it. It doesn't matter if you set up your own platform, like people like Sam Harris have done, where apparently he's uncancellable, but at the same time, he he's subject to the same forces. Do you know what I mean? Depending yeah. on what what he says, what he doesn't say, what he speaks about, what he doesn't speak about, his subscribers will go up and his subscribers will go down, and and this is just this is the world that we live in, man. Like Hunger Games content creation, like a little bit of the Running Man in there sometimes. I say like it feels like that for me sometimes running the social media gauntlet. So it's it's kind of you get your left wingers, your right wingers, you've got some charlatans, you've got some. Some people who are making weird moves and things like that, but there's no escape from that. There's no right. escape from it. The minute that you hit a certain level of success and a certain level of prominence, you get kind of sucked into it because this is the canal system that we live in. There's no alternative outside of it just now. And no. that's unfortunately, or fortunately depending on what, we, what your agenda is. Um, some people wouldn't be conflicted about taking that amount of money that I just mentioned for an hour's work uh, and a few hours travelling would be like, cool, and I'll take a photo with the cunt as well. Girl, go for <laughs> extra 500 Do you know what I mean? Whereas Aye. my big my big concern would be be seen in the same photograph as the cunt. Do Aye. you know what I mean? Just even Aye. though even, even though just the optics of that for me, it's not Aye. good enough. You know what I mean? I can't I can't be seen to be sharing oxygen sometimes with certain people because I just don't think it's a good look.
0: But does that come that obviously comes from like the working class mentality of I'm not fucking having that cunt. Get him away from me it's that like I can't was it, it was either poverty safari or I think it was poverty safari that you talked about how working class people get a certain mentality when you grow up don't let anybody talk about you don't let anybody talk about your family and if they do smash them that's I, it I, it's the exact same thing like Mike Tyson said it, all these wee guys on social media are giving it big licks but they're not going to do it to your face yeah the exact same there's a different there's a different atmosphere when you're actually there in front of them they're not seeing <laughs>
1: Let me explain why I wouldn't want to be in the room with this particular politician, but right?
0: down. I seen you turned down Fraser Nelson from the Spectator. Because he, he was. Thank fuck you did that. Like no, no, offensively, like, you're a fan of Fraser Nelson. That I'm not as big as fan. But
1: well, the thing is that after that, I messaged him and I was saying, listen, I appreciate the offer to like put on an event in London, and I think yeah. there would be certain situations where I would go into that that Lions den if it was a debate with a certain conservative-minded person who I thought was worth worth talking to and it would be interesting for my audience. But just as a matter of course, I would need to do it in a way that I could explain to the people who are invested in me as an audience, people who come to my shows, who buy my books. I think that they'll always give me a certain level of discretion to make decisions. But I think if I just turned up one day and was like, "Ah, I'm doing this event at a Spectator in London with no context for why, Just for the sheer publicity of it or the sheer cheapness of it or whatever then i just think that you know within myself i know that maybe i would be asking people who've supported me for years to just make too much a concession without being given proper context and it's the same I, i can't i can't lie man i move in a world now where i come across people like that and my philosophy is always the same in real life or in work or in business it's really just on a person-to-person level, if you're cool with me, I'm going to be cool with you. I'm not going to make a big stunt out of being in the same room as you, but, like, you know, I'm not going to go and do, I'm not going to put myself in a situation uh, where I might end up being compromised because I'm uh, on my desire to be polite and be kind and be gracious, and then that ending up becoming, like, perceived as something else other than that as an endorsement of somebody else's worldview, as an endorsement of of somebody else's politics, you know what I mean? So it's like, but as I say, I come from a place of of privilege to be able to make that decision, to say, no, I'm, I don't want to endorse your brand. I don't want to go into a room with that sort of person. I'll knock back that money because um, it, it's not affecting me in any way. Do you know what I mean? And and so when I say that, I'm no preaching. That's no. Part of our privilege. part of your privilege is you can make a decision, you can make the call does this align with my, what I want to do then out? And then you can just do that, and that's part of the, the freedom that comes with having a wee bit more economic leeway.
0: Whereas a couple of years ago, you might have had to do that work, not just for the money, but to get your name out there. But there's yeah. now your point where you can go, oh, nah, I don't need that event, and that event doesn't need me. It's that kind of thing where you can push and pull, and you can do what you want.
1: Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I would be happy to go into an environment maybe it was a more adversarial dynamic if it was a discussion or something like that, I would be happy to go in. But it's like it's a Tory cabinet minister. Do you know what I mean? And 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 I just I can understand why they've invited me to speak at the thing because it's about it's a it's about leadership or something like that. It's that kind of theme, right? And so I would be happy to go and go and do that. Um but it's it's like I would say out of the whole cabinet he's one of the more competent ones but that doesn't mean that I align with him anymore. That doesn't mean I align with him anymore. Politically, I just know he's been in so many governments. Obviously, he can do a job for whoever's in charge. Do you know what I mean? But it would just be weird. It would be weird. It would be weird because one of the dangers I see when you're kind of, you're a naturally kind of um, uh, conversational person, an open person. One Aye. of the things about how 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 uh, how you can get co-opted um, politically is that The minute that you go into a room with somebody that you previously perceived as an enemy and then they're charismatic, they're kind, they're funny, it humanizes them in a way. And so you have to be careful about who gets humanized because obviously you understand everybody's a human, everybody's complex, everybody has a rich experience that they draw from, and that you can't pinpoint a person's entire essence just through their political position on a specific issue. But also once you've humanized them, then it makes them harder to hold to account. Once you have a personal connection to someone, once you have like met someone, uh, then then the tendency actually is the opposite of holding them to account. The tendency is to then become someone who kind of tries to explain things on their behalf because Aye. you kind of, like we talked about with Dee earlier, you start to see it from their point of view because you've met them. And uh, politicians and journalists are really good at this. Politicians and journalists, man, are so charming. And when they talk to you, they make you feel like you're the only person in the whole fucking world. And you just start talking to them in a way that you wouldn't talk normally. And this is part of their skill, their manipulation. Uh, They're very good at it. And so sometimes I just choose not to put myself in that because I'm susceptible to that. Because I just, I I, I like to be human when I'm around people and, and give myself over to those forces. So sometimes I'm better just not being in the room and then you don't get humanized. You know what I mean? (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, well, that's it, aye. It's not, but it's true, but you're right, uh, you're right. Because there is, I mean, like, growing up in a place like this, like, you do, you get to know people that normally you wouldn't get to know. Like, my cousin married, and uh, we went to the wedding, and he said, do you know who that guy is? now?" And, and he went, "Oh, that's the highest judge in Scotland. And I was like, what the fuck have you managed this? I was like, what the fuck are you on about? It was like, eh? like we grew up in Oban, and you're we kicking about with all these people. But I suppose it came, that kind of relates, like, back to book where it is, like, you get put in those situations, and you can adapt, because you've had to adapt. Yeah, I have to put on a certain accent when you're doing interviews like this So that you come across well, so that you come across hell Whereas sitting with your pals, you can just kind of mumble and talk about what you want Do yeah. whatever you want, speak however you want, it's all that sort of stuff So like, I suppose when, if you're sitting in a room with, like you said, a Tory cabinet minister There is that side of you that comes out of, articulate side of it But then there's the pure kind of, not like the primal instinct to. It's like that that working class mentality of, I'm not having this guy that's it. Aye. So I suppose it's kind of not saving yourself, but saving everything from that. Aye, it's, it's just it's it, it You
1: realise, you realise. I talk about this in the show. There's a lot of references to like famous people that I've met, um, right. that I've come across, and it's not necessarily for name dropping because I'm not that sort of person. Do you know what I mean? And there's, there's there's loads of people that I've met, I've never mentioned that and I'll never talk about it. But thematically for the show, it works because it all. Helps to place me in a certain hierarchy and a certain pecking order um, as I'm coming to terms with my own visibility while meeting really, really famous people, really rich people, really powerful people, right, occasionally. And so it's me kind of talking about how weird that is or funny instances and interactions. I talk about being approached by Paolo Nettini's manager during the pandemic and a funny moment where uh, basically. Coincidentally, before Paolo Nettini's manager got in touch with me, I'd had a random dream about Paolo Nettini, and it was quite recent to that moment. I, and, and so while I was in there in interaction with his manager, I just kind of blurted it out because I was overwhelmed with a sense of coincidence, do you know what I mean? Uh, but then, as soon as the words left my mouth, I was like, oh, I'm going to sound mental to them. And so they had got in touch to get my number because Paolo wanted to get in touch with me for whatever reason. But I never yeah. heard anything from them after that. And the thing is, I understand within myself... Uh, People are very busy, uh, all of that sort of stuff. But the thing is, um, the joke in the show is just about how I felt so humiliated and cringing at m- m- how I accounted for myself in that interaction, that my Aye. only way out of it was to hate, start hating Paul and the Teeny and to start being aggressive about Paul and the, <laughs> so the whole So the whole thing comes into kinda, a kind of parody of me dissing Paul and the Teeny. do you know what I mean? For a joke. Aye. Aye. So it's it's like, but the thing is, man, like, um, when you when you are moving in that world, the first thing that you notice is um, really famous people are used to having so much of a fuss made over them that someone like me who doesn't really care about celebrity and who doesn't really care if you're famous um, can come across as a bit kind of self-assured and a bit of a cunt because right. they're used to people just being so, oh my god it's you, oh my god it's you and I'm just like, I mean I, I know what I'm about, I'm, I'm like a fully formed human being and, 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 and i'll contend with anybody in any situation so the fame in and of itself i don't get starstruck i've never asked anybody for an autograph i mean i've met more famous people than i could count and i have never once asked for a selfie i wouldn't bother people like that i wouldn't Aye. want to get in people's personal space like that like having a conversation is cool with me but at the same time what i do notice is there is a kind of deference that can kick in there is a kind of uh, you start buying into this idea that maybe those people should be treated a bit different, that are a wee bit special um, yep. and then this kind of rubs off on you because you think, well, if they're a wee bit special and then I'm in these rooms with them, does that mean I'm a wee bit special? And right. so you know, your whole class politics gets inverted and flung about and it challenges you, you know what I mean? Because right. I can see why some people would just sell out like that. I mean some people call me a seller but they don't have any idea about the things I've knocked back the, the things I've declined, the the opportunities I didn't explore because I just didn't think it would have been worth the compromise. Um, I, I challenge anybody who thinks I'm a sellout to, to walk in my shoes, and 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 retain as much integrity as I've retained after this last five or six years of pretty much being able to do whatever the fuck I want. you know? What
0: I, mean? I don't know. Uh, calling you a sellout to me is that's wild, uh, because like you were always political. Like all your music, you're political. It's not as if you've just made a change where it's like, right, I'm doing this now. Like, don't get me wrong, I think if you started doing like travel programs, if it was like Dana McGarvey parts unknown, you're like the new auntie. But then I'd be a bit like, What's he doing? But at the same time, I'd be like, Right, fair enough, he's trying to make that money, he's trying to do it. Do you know what I mean? So it's not, I think some people just view it a different way, do you know what I mean? Because it's not, it's not one of those things. But like, I mean, you crowdfunded the first book, you obviously got a book deal to get like the second one, TV shows with the BBC, everything else you're doing, like the podcast self funded, this tour self funded. I don't think. Anybody calling you a sales Just not listen to you Or just right. not be attention for long enough
1: Definitely But, you, but the, the, the deeper point there is That with the kind of access That I've got And the kind of reputation That I've got now um And a wee bit of the clout that you get After you win a few awards for different things right? It'd be very easy To cash in It'd be very easy to say Do you know what, I'll tone down I'll tone down a wee bit of of the, the the angry stuff, and right. then I'll lean right into the 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 you know the stuff that the the folk in London like. Let me go and do those elocution lessons and sort my accent out and all that. That would be selling out. Selling out would be like compromising your integrity for uh, a, 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 a short term uh, goal or financial gain. And 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 there just is just doesn't really there's no really a, there's no really an evidence of me consistently doing that. I might have took on a gig here or there that I'd rather I know done because, like everybody else, after Christmas is a nightmare for me because aye. because I don't know what my royalty check's going to be in the March. And and the more money you have, the more you spend. You know what I mean? You just get the oh, more aye. expensive version of everything, so aye. you still feel skint. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You've got more money, but you're more skint. Ah, you're just spending everything. <laughs> uh, tell you what I said. Uh, Canine Cave me. Yeah, I'm going to give you a shout as well uh, so I told him that I was interviewing you And he was like, no way And I was like, aye, he just gave me all these I stories. love Kev, yeah. man, a
1: lot of respect for Kev and a lot of respect. I remember when he was just kind of Starting out in the scene And like everybody, we have a hard time in the beginning There's a lot of naysayers. There's a lot of people who think What are you, what are you doing, right though? I mean, it's all right for everybody else to be there. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> and the thing is, man, that, that boy's persistence and that boy's decency, his mannerisms—I mean, right. he was just always streets ahead of everybody in terms of understanding. See if you treat people nice, people will treat you nice. And I think it just took people who weren't there, like close to him, a while to understand that he He's was not like
0: going the, be sly or anything like that. He, he was the real him. deal. He was just right.
1: always the real deal. Always just pure, as the Edinburgh cons would say, "Jane up," right? Just like. Straight up, me agenda, always kind things to say. And you know what, man? It's people like that that make the hip-hop community more pleasant, you know what I mean? It offsets a lot of the braggadocia and the kiddy on aggression and everybody's a hard man when they're steaming, but they wouldn't have got their house sober. And then you've got a guy like him, a responsible man, do you know what I, I mean? Like, uh, who's just like, he's just always been... On the level, he's always been brand new. So just I have a lot of respect for him. And I, I bump into a few like my man Jamie, I was telling you about earlier. Just creatives for up that neck of the woods. Do you know what I mean? In the highlands on my travels, uh, And a number of different fields, but obviously music and hip hop and poetry being the one where I kind of cross paths with people the most.
0: Magic man. I actually watched your uh, is it your call you call that radio set? Is it Scotland today? Either Scotland today on that, that verse of Scotland today is phenomenal, like the live version of you doing that is brilliant on that Uh, I'm trying to get like a non-explicit (laughs) version I radio edit I radio edit or something because I can't Right, so Open FM is like a total community radio. I've only started doing this like two months ago, and I want to get like I want to get people that like K9Kev, or like other bands here, or other artists, or whatever. Give them a platform on the radio because it's like yeah, going to Spotify now. And now and you've got all this stuff. You can see the algorithms. You can see whatever. You can see oh that town likes this, that town whatever. So do you know what I mean? I'm trying to get people to come here, like maybe like yourself, to actually perform, like to actually do stuff. But I don't know if Open's got that gig venue really. But it's stuff like that that I'm trying well, to get.
1: When I come up, I'm going to be playing in the the view.
0: Um,
1: which I've not been in. Um, I don't know what what Aye. the setups like. Um, but I mean, I mean, Kev was showing me pictures of it, and I was like, "Where's the stage?" And then he was like, "Show me another picture." So again, it's a different, another different venue for anybody else that I've played. You
0: know. I mean? else for to like contend with. Great. Right. Thanks very much, darling. I've ran out of questions. I've ran out of things to say. No <laughs> worries, mate. <laughs> But you know what I mean. I don't want to take all your time up. Uh, you've been good enough to give me another there. I'm sorry about that at the start.
1: Oh well, no, it was that was my phone. My phone was just having a panic attack. Um, <laughs> but but it's got because I've downloaded so many clips on it. Was we're uploading things to the podcast, so I've got to download them and watch them. So my phone memory's just Aye. packed out. Um, oh, no mate, it's, it's, it's a good interview Thanks for putting the time in to prep it Do you know what I mean?
0: No, at all Agent emailed me today and was like, we need to do it tonight And I was like, shit No, so, oh, you've
1: done a good job it. I know I kind of it, it was just because as, as I started looking at how things pan out After the Easter uh, holidays finish And Aye. then it was like Actually, it'd probably be better to it probably be better to do it sooner rather than later You know Aye. what I mean? Because Aye. as I head into the weekend, man The weekend's really my only days off When I don't have the kids and I right. just need to recuperate then. But right. listen, I'll catch up with you when I'm up. I'm going to be up. I'll be staying the night in open anyway, so I'll be able to catch up with you and, and get the chat and that.
0: Perfect. Nobody at all, I'll be there anyway. Looking nice forward. class. Perfect. It's Thanks very much, Have a good night, mate. You too. Bye. Beautiful. Cracking show for Ken and Kev at the end there. Big shout out to Dan for doing that as well. Really didn't expect his, uh, his agent to reply to me, or even himself to reply to me, but the fact that they both did. Is magic. I think it says a lot about him. Uh, to be doing stuff like this, wee tiny community radio show, and obviously this shitty fucking podcast I'm doing, I'm only joking. Uh, Bye, show to him. So, aye, people, buy a ticket, go see him on Friday night. Uh, we want stuff like this to come to the town, we want people like him to come to the town. So, obviously, if you don't go, they won't come back. Buy a ticket, take the ride, all the rest, all of it. I'm in Jambo, you're not. It's easy now.